The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being was his life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will or of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory and his glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the one God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, welcome to Christmas according to the Gospel of John. That's kind of what we get. I mean, actually, this reading today is what we get. There's no baby in the manger. There are no three kings. It's the cosmic incarnation that John tells. And, and the poetry is, you know, gorgeous, but what does it mean? Well, maybe the best answer is ultimately it means more than we can ever comprehend. Um, but, but there are some claims here in this prologue to John's gospel that are worth noting with awe and wonder, actually. First is the claim that God the Son has always existed with the Father and the Spirit. That, that, that's an astonishing claim, really. Something maybe we take for granted, but something the rest of the religious world does not at all. And, and it's right alongside another astonishing claim. Um, it's, it's spiritual ancestor, really. The first verse of Genesis, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Th those two claims, I feel like, are kind of where we start as Christians. That God doesn't just watch as creation takes shape. God brings creation into being. The spirit moving across the waters of chaos to create the beautiful and well-ordered universe that the Webb Space Telescope has shown us this year, actually. Similarly, God the Son isn't a son along the lines of the kings of Israel who were said to be adopted by God at their coronations. Instead, the Christ, the true king, has been there from the start. 
So the son has always been and remains the father's creative partner in the power of the spirit. And in the fullness of time, that creative word became flesh and lived among us, John's gospel says. Or as the the paraphrase, the message puts it, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Which I just love that language. I love that language because it's so intimate and so real. I mean, you can kind of hold at arm's length the idea of God living among us, you know, imagining that it's maybe some other us that the gospel writer has in mind. But, but if God's moving into the neighborhood, I mean, that puts a very fine point on the tangible nature of incarnation. God choosing, well, that God, that God did choose a very particular neighborhood to inhabit back in the day. But with us as the body of Christ in the world and with the Holy Spirit ever present, God still moves into every neighborhood we can know. As, uh, as Father Jerry Kolb likes to remind us when he offers the final blessing, you cannot go where God is not. It's great. So, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. But what or who is that? the word. I mean, on its surface, it seems familiar, right? We, we, we talk about the Bible being the word of God, right? So is John's gospel saying scripture became flesh and lived among us? I mean, if so, the logical conclusion would be that scripture is the object of our worship, that, that God is contained within these pages and these pages alone, seems like a pretty small box for the sovereign of the universe to inhabit. And there you see the limits of trying to read poetry as technical writing. (laughs) I mean, John's gospel is not a manual for disassembling the divine and then putting it back together in a way we can understand. Instead, the gospels are, are mirrors that catch God at different angles revealing a mystery so deep and so vast, we can only take in a few glances at a time. So, so what is John's poetry trying to say here? The key word is word. <laughs> and it meant something very different theologically 2,000 years ago um, in, in the context John was using it. Word didn't mean just printed word or even spoken word exactly. I mean, human words could carry divine word, but not all human words speak the divine. So in Greek, John's term is logos, and and it means something well beyond human expression. For for the ancient Greeks, whose, whose thinking helped shape the good news as it spread beyond its Jewish roots, the, the word logos had several meanings. The, the, the eternal principle of order in the universe or the, the intermediary between God and God's creatures that gave meaning and plan to the universe or, or the instrument of God in creation and the pattern of the human soul. Heady stuff. And, and Jewish tradition understood the word of God similarly often naming the word of the Lord, you know, as, a, as an active, creative, corrective, saving force in the world. 
like when it came to the prophets and impelled them to go speak on God's behalf. And of course, you know, Genesis says it is through God's word the creation even came to be. So once we glimpse what word meant, we then have to think about what it means for word to take flesh. So one commentator boils it down really nicely. I, I like this line, <clears throat> that, that as the Logos incarnate, Jesus does not simply speak God's words and do God's works, but rather he does those things because he is God's word and work in the world. And it's worth noting the verb tense there. Um, it's not just that Jesus was the Logos incarnate. He is God's word and work in the world. The word that is still taking flesh and moving into the neighborhood, you know, meeting us out on the sidewalk day by day. And of course, sometimes where that sidewalk runs is not exactly through Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. <laughs> like you probably, I saw the, the news footage last weekend from Bethlehem. Now, any other Christmas in any other year, Manger Square and the Church of the Nativity there would be packed. And even in May, when I was there, this church marking Jesus's birthplace was, was so crowded that the pilgrims didn't stand in line to go touch the cave's holy stone. We, we moved like a school of fish funneled through this tiny opening. And guiding us to, to that spot and all through our Holy Land pilgrimage was a young woman named Rania. Now, Rania is just the kind of person you want leading your pilgrimage visits. Not just kind and attentive, but brilliant and faithful. Rania certainly knows her history, um, but even more, she lives it through her own specific incarnation in that place. She and her parents and her children are Palestinians living in the West Bank. And they're among the 2% of Holy Land residents who are Christians. So as we walked through countless churches, you know, she, she knew the traditions about what Jesus had done in each of those places. And, and she knew the history of one force after another seeking to control those places. Romans and Byzantines and Sultans and Crusaders and Ottomans and Brits and now Israelis. But beyond telling the history, Rania also showed us what it's like to live as a tiny minority in a land controlled by another country. So on a bus ride going south along the Jordan River, she described the reality of life on the West Bank and, and the blame that all sides share. For example, about the, the towering concrete divider running through cities and villages and the countryside, she, she carefully called it the security wall or the separation wall. What it is depends on who you are and which neighborhood you inhabit. I mean, does that wall keep terrorists out of Israel? Well, when I was there in May, the answer was yes, though I'm sure the answer would be different today. And does that wall separate Palestinian people from their jobs and their loved ones and any sense of being free? The answer certainly is yes to that one. 
But, but what really struck me about Rania, beyond her intellect, was her faith. I mean, of, of all the people in the Holy Land, uh, a local tour guide might have the most cause to be a cynic. I mean, week after week, she leads one group after another, enduring travelers who haven't bothered to learn much of anything about her land. And over and over, she visits sites like Cana, for example, where, you know, maybe Jesus turned water into wine there. We can't really know for sure whether it's that spot, but, but certainly there's been a lot of blood spilled over it and plenty of churches built to market and, and plenty of gift shops nearby. And on top of all that, as a Palestinian Christian, Rania has nobody going to bat politically for her or her family's interests and well-being. And yet, what we heard in her descriptions of one site after another in this broken Holy Land was her trust in the truth those sites represent. I mean, God has been on the ground there, and Rania knows it in her soul. The, the accounts from Scripture roll off her tongue like old family stories, you know, narratives of identity that form us into who we are. God's action there, all through salvation history, is, is simply a given for Rania, every bit as real and true as the conflicts raging around her. Now, what I don't know at this point is how Rania and her family are. The people who run the pilgrimage company uh, are, are going to go to the Holy Land next week, actually, to talk with her and try to get a sense of the conditions on the ground. But, but I've been thinking about her and her children a lot in the last two and a half months. I mean, she doesn't live in Gaza, thank God, but, but I'm sure she has friends and family there. And, you know, the people of the West Bank are hardly out of harm's way, never knowing when Israeli settlers will come and take their land, or worse. So, in this tragic Christmas in the Holy Land, as, as pilgrims and the tiny Christian community are not filling Manger Square and the Church of the Nativity, and as the people living there don't know what horror might come next, regardless of all that, we remember, and Rania remembers, that the Word of God came among us and comes among us still. I mean, for me, it comes in the person of Rania and Father Niel, the Anglican priest we met in Nazareth, and, and the folks who serve at St. George's Cathedral in East Jerusalem, and, and the staff at the hospitals and other mission sites run by the Episcopal Diocese there. John's gospel says, to all who received him, who, who believe in his name, Jesus gave power to become children of God. In them and in us, God continues to join humanity with the Logos, making us not just born of flesh, but reborn of the Spirit. And this is why we must not despair when we witness empty holy sites and separation walls and daily airstrikes, 
Instead, we must join with Rania in witnessing to the way the word makes creation new, even there. I mean, we can't stop the killing and the other injustices in Gaza and Israel and the West Bank. But we can stand with Rania and John the Baptist and the other lonely voices crying out in the wilderness to say that injustice and death are not God's answers to human problems. We must expect better and we must embody better because after all, from that tiny speck of God's good creation that we call the Holy Land, that place where the word first took flesh and moved into the neighborhood, God's light still shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it.